0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Ben Nobs Thiessen, an assistant professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. Ben is the author of Landscape of Migration, Mobility and Environmental Change on Bolivia's Tropical Frontier, 1952 to the present. Out this year from the University of North Carolina Press. Landscape of Migration follows the entwined trajectories of Andean, Mennonite, and Okinawan migrants to lowland colonies outside of Santa Cruz, Bolivia, and in the process traces a history of agrarian citizenship and its contested relationship with both 20th century development processes and the landscapes they seek to transform. Welcome, Ben, to the podcast. It's great to have you here.
1: Oh, hi, Elena. Thanks for having me on the program. I'm doing well.
0: So let's start a little bit with some background about what happens in your books. For example, with the region of Santa Cruz, why did the lowlands of Bolivia become such a focal point for migratory and development projects over the course of the 20th century?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great place to start. Um I- Interesting, kind of thinking about this in a spatial way, I just encourage, you know, anyone listening to go to Google Maps, look up Santa Cruz and hit the satellite filter, right? So you can kind of get a sense of that landscape. And um, it's in a unique location, kind of smack dab in the middle of South America, uh, which, depending upon the years of this book, might be perceived as the middle of nowhere or kind of the center of everything um, as the region changed. And you'll you'll get a sense of Bolivia as quite a divided country, right, between a a western sort of Andean highlands, a a high plateau, as well as the valleys of the Andes, and then this vast expanse um, of lowlands, uh, mostly densely forested, running kind of from uh, the southern edges of Amazonia, um, which start basically just on the northern outskirts of Santa Cruz de la Sierra, the big city there, um, and then kind of transitioning down into a semi-tropical forest, and then eventually a much drier, almost scrub brush region of the Gran Chaco, um, and so Santa Cruz is kind of a, I think what environmental historians would refer to as an ecotone, right? It sits at the eastern edge of the last sort of mountains of the Andes, and at the middle of these different lowland landscapes. Um, as such, it was kind of uniquely positioned in a way as a potential node for development. Um, and that's certainly what elites have been, you know, proclaiming loudly to anyone who would listen for, for a long time. Um, without much success at all. Um, and they also kind of cried abandonment from the national government. This is a region that had no road connections, all weather road connections to the highlands where most people lived, um, nor any kind of rail connections to its frontiers with Argentina and Brazil. And these were something that elites in the region wanted. Um, it's also kind of worth um, pointing out that while a large portion of Amazonia um, suffers from kind of soils that are Initially fertile, but quickly declined in fertility. Um, There was sort of a deep soil, topsoil base in Santa Cruz, which made it quite a potentially um, productive region for intensive agriculture. Um, So that was kind of the the general context. And then, um, you know, thinking about the change in this location, um, just to give a broad sketch, um, this is a a region again, Santa Cruz Department, the territorial divisions in Bolivia are departments, and Santa Cruz, um, the largest in size. Um, of all Bolivian departments, um, but had a tiny population up to about 1950 um, when there was a census in Bolivia. There's probably only maybe a little less than 50,000 people living in the city of Santa Cruz de la Sierra. And if we flash forward kind of half a century, the period covered by this book, um, today Santa Cruz is the largest city in Bolivia, Um, larger at least um, individually than La Paz or Alto together. They're about the same size. Um, So it, it rapidly outpaced Andean. Um, urban centers over the course um, that is covered by this book, um, and it really kind of grew into one of the most economically dynamic places in the country, um, and reportedly the fastest growing city in South America, the second fastest growing in all of the Americas um, outside of Toluca um, near Mexico City. Um, and so it was a, a really rapid process of change, which I think makes it quite unique for Latin America, in particular, where we just. Don't really see um, core sort of capitals, right? Um, from the colonial period or the Republican period, I think Buenos Aires or Mexico City, um being displaced by other regions. Certainly we see stories about regional growth, you know, in northern Mexico and southern Brazil. Um, and maybe the Brazilian example of the earlier growth of Sao Paulo is, is somewhat comparable. Um, but this is not common, right, to see that rapid displacement um shift of resources to the, the other end of the country.
0: Especially after 1952, you have like the development of a really distinct regional identity, right, in the lowland area that contrasts itself from um, the highlands and a kind of also seismic shift in where power could be derived in the country. So if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that that would be great to touch on. Um, You know, I like to think of myself as hopefully speaking to this group of scholars that are investigating the legacies of the 1952 revolution um, and as I said, whereas, you know, for most of the late 19th, early 20th century, Santa Cruz elites in the small town were kind of petitioning the government for development funding, it didn't really happen. Um, it didn't even really happen after Bolivia lost um, in the Chaco War with neighboring Paraguay, a conflict that took place in the region. Um, and it wasn't really until the 1952 revolution when you had a unique combination, right, of Bolivia's revolutionary government um, putting together this plan, which, while kind of a quarrel to the revolution, is often sort of downplayed a bit in favor of very massive processes of social change, like the agrarian reform, the nationalization of the mines, and enfranchising um, the indigenous population, was this fourth dynamic, which was the march to the east, um, as it was often known. And that idea was kind of a rapid shift of resources towards the frontier. Um, They used U.S support in the 1950s and 60s. Bolivia received more more absolute support than any other Latin American nation in the 50s um, and more per capita in the 60s to build roads. Um, they used cooperation with Brazil and Argentina to build rail networks. And so this development converged on the region and the government also encouraged indigenous Bolivians, especially from the highlands, um, which they perceived in sort of a population logic of the day as overcrowded. Um, we can debate what that might actually mean, um, to move down to the lowland frontier. Initially, small-scale colonies, eventually larger ones. Um, And what we see is a huge process, a demographic shift in a nation which had long been based in the highlands, dependent upon mining, um, pushing its population down to the frontier with these very mid-20th century goals of food security, um, territorial integrity. Um, along this frontier zone. And as you point out, along the way, we see kind of profound intensification of uh, a pre-existing regional dynamic that that kind of separated Highlanders, uh, we'd also use the term Koyas, um, from Kambas, this lowland population. And uh, this, again, as I said, was sort of an identity that was in place um, previously, but it intensified with the arrival of these migrants. And so to briefly summarize, and others have discussed this as well, right, this was an argument that the lowland regions of Bolivia did not have neither the sort of larger Incan empire legacy of the pre-colonial period, nor the colonial sort of legacy of the mining regions and and Spanish control there, but were rather directly linked to lowland groups, Um, so there was sort of a symbolic um, embrace of lowland groups like the Guaraní, um, as opposed to, say, modern and Quechua groups that were arriving as settlers. Um, and also a claim that the colonial heritage was that of the Rio de la Plata. Um, and so it was the sort of Spanish conquistador, conquistadors that had settled that region um, that were sort of the, the progenitors of, of identity in Santa Cruz. And that, of course, wasn't um, a surprising stance to take, given how rapidly the Rio de la Plata had grown in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Santa Cruz elites were watching that and kind of pinning their future onto that type of growth and really strategically distancing themselves from the highlands. So as I said, these identities quite latent um, for a period of time with the 50s and especially the 60s as thousands of migrants moved from the highlands to the lowlands, they intensified, they became more explicitly racialized, um, often pinned on these strategic embraces of of, uh, a non-highland indigenous identity.
0: It's, it's very interesting because if looking at Bolivian history, you have longstanding anxieties about, you know, territorial integrity, like the loss of of vast tracts of land to, to neighboring countries in wars or in border disputes, and then also anxieties about having the wrong kind of population, right? So sort of eugenicist or... Um, uh, anxieties about the whitening of or the lack thereof of the proper kind of migration to the country sort of come together in this space in Santa Cruz. And then in the mid 20th century, you argue that it takes on a kind of high modernist development project um, bent and that the people who are some of the people who are coming in to do some of this work are um, sort of I guess what you might say is unexpected migrants, or at least in the annals of Latin American history, migratory communities that have not received a great deal of attention. So, who are these new these new actors that you bring in?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great point to add into. And I just want to I just want to add in there as well. I, I really like your mention of of sort of the anxieties and and sometimes the, the racial pessimism that that accompanied sort of a lot of the early twentieth century um, political thought in Bolivia certainly in this case, if we just return for a second to the Andean migrants that are being brought down as colonists, um, there is this sort of sense that part of the the MNR's larger goal of incorporating indigenous peoples into national life is really tied into transforming them into these settler migrants. Um, And so they're going to transform the landscape, they're going to be transformed through the process of interacting with the landscape, and they'll become kind of full market producers for the nation, right? Although small farmers are hoping these people will be 50 hectare or sometimes 25 hectare farmers. Um, So this is the major migration that takes place, um, but then it's paired with these other unexpected transnational streams. And if you were hanging out um, in La Paz in the immediate wake of the revolution, you might've bumped into some of these actors, um, which included a group of uh, low German speaking Mennonites. Um, This is a Protestant or Anabaptist group, that uh, often lived in colonies, had established themselves in Latin America in the 1920s, um, and then kind of expanded through a series of sub-migrations to different regions. Um, And these folks had a long sort of identity as farmers on frontier landscapes. Prior to Latin America, they had been living in the Russian Empire, farming the Ukraine uh, well into the 1870s. When a group, kind of facing some challenges to their their ways of life, which included non service in the military, running their own educational systems, um, decided to migrate to Canada and kind of became prairie settlers, frontier settlers in the recently created province of Manitoba, where I'm bound for for my new job. Um, by the 1920s, they kind of faced that similar dynamic in Canada. Language schools, Low German language schools in the colonies, were being closed down, and some of the more traditional Mennonites opted to petition Latin American governments for the right to settle, again, kind of contested frontier environments, challenging often agricultural regions. Um, And so they came to Mexico in the 20s, to Paraguay, um, just across from the region we're talking about in Bolivia in 1926, and then really kind of got themselves mixed up in the middle of the Chaco War. And then by the 1950s, as this plan to develop Santa Cruz was gaining traction a group of Mennonites from Paraguay arrived to sort of ask the government if they could have a similar set of guarantees, um, freedom from military service, right? This was compulsory in Bolivia, um, as well as rights to run their own low German schools and some other colony sort of institutions and live a relatively isolated life on the frontier. And, and they were welcomed in by the, um, by the Bolivian government in 1954. Um, we had a supreme decree that gave them rights that they were looking for under the specific condition that they participate in the agricultural developments of Bolivia. Um, so that was front and center. Um, so this was one group. Um, at the same time, in those same years as the agrarian reforms being passed in Bolivia, we also had a small group of resident um, Japanese Bolivians, uh, many who had arrived via Peru, kind of in the later stages of the rubber boom, and had settled in the Amazon and Ruralta and these other areas. Um, And learning of sort of the devastation of post-war Japan and Okinawa um, and pressures with overcrowding and lack of resources, they petitioned the government to sort of bring in several thousand Okinawan settlers um, to lowland Bolivia. They'd already established a small sort of experimental colony um, not too far from Santa Cruz. And um, their idea was to expand this dramatically. And so this this case was a bit more... um, even more transnational, perhaps, than this Mennonite story winding through the Americas, um, in that at the time, the U.S. government was occupying, had claimed sovereignty over Okinawa, um, and was building military bases on about a third of the arable land on the islands. And so there was this real push factor from across the Pacific, um, that you had these displaced Okinawans who were perceived as potential radicals by U.S. forces. Um, The U.S. government kept meticulous records on all Okinawan political organizing at this time. And it also contracted a sociologist um, out of the Hoover Institute, James Tigner, to travel around Latin America looking for, probably not put it another way, a place that they could dump this surplus population or at least encourage them to emigrate to. And certainly there was a desire in Okinawa to emigrate as well amid these challenging circumstances. Um, and so Tickner bumps into this small organization of Japanese Bolivians and they hatch a plan with the Bolivian government to also create an Okinawan colony in Santa Cruz. Um, at the same time, and I'll, I'll just briefly mention, there's a separate Japanese colony which is established um, there as well. And it might just be useful to kind of understand Okinawa as a colonized region, incorporated as a prefecture of Japan in the 1870s, but with a distinct... Sort of cultural heritage and so you get all these groups really settling alongside one another if you know if i went on a day trip from santa cruz as i often did during my field work there you could in a very short period of time pass through a colony the first colony of sort of transplanted andeans that had settled in the region um travel next to the first group of paraguayan mennonites that had settled there um, that had formed a colony called canadian canadian one and canadian two um, referencing their prior Canadian background, and then you could travel up to Okinawa one, two, and three along the major river. Um, and so I just found that diversity of settlers quite quite fascinating, and kind of a unique way to look at comparative migratory dynamics.
0: So the the transnational story you tell, because in this book you're both hyper local and regional, and looking at national dynamics, and then also a kind of transnational, not just the Cold War, but um a, a series of different movements across both the Atlantic and the Pacific, um, you sort of it, it helps you get at something that um that I guess complicates investigations into things like settler colonialism or comparing settler to um other kinds of colonialism and in these contexts. And and one of the things you bring up is a is symbolized concept of sub-imperialist migrations. And so these are these are not simple subjects in one context that then translate to the Bolivian context, right? All of these groups are, are navigating at multiple levels, um, countries that are host countries and to various degrees, either hostile to or anxious about them. So um, it's, a, it's a really interesting dynamic that, that all gets brought together in this very, well, relatively small space.
1: Yeah, I think that, that that is an excellent point to make about these, these different groups. And they have, they have such different trajectories in a way that the kind of engaging of the comparison is challenging at times. But if you, if you investigate some of their experiences, as you said, kind of within and between nations and empires, you really do see some commonalities. Uh, Mennonites perceive themselves certainly as the victims of sort of cultural assimilation policies, first in Russia, later in Canada. That drove them to Latin America. Um, Okinawans had certainly had very similar experiences about sort of forced cultural change as they were progressively incorporated um, as a prefecture of Japan. Um, and Dan's of course also kind of faced a very paternalistic model of cultural change. Certainly the march to the east itself was, was based on that notion of transformation. And so these groups were also kind of non-citizens between nations or partial citizens or people that only recently gained full citizenship. Um, and, and I find those, those overlaps, those actual points of overlaps, quite, quite profound. Um, the, the, other, the other kind of angle I hope to draw on certainly was to follow these migrants in the various places they went before arriving in Santa Cruz. Um, and I mentioned the Okinawan story, um, which has been discussed in, in more depth, of course, in that, in that historiography on U.S. occupation in Okinawa. Um, I do delve quite heavily in, in Chapter 2 into the Mennonite story as well, what conditions in northern Mexico Um, including a long mid-century drought, um, produced tensions in the Mennonite community there that would eventually lead them to Bolivia. Um, And, you know, the the Andeans, of course, as you said, this this different trajectory of internal migration or internal colonialism um, had actually also had this pretty profound transnational experience, especially after the 52 revolution, which generated huge amounts of mobility among highland populations, an increasing number of Andeans would travel as seasonal workers from Highland departments down into Argentina. And so many of them worked in these low wage, um, highly exploited roles as sugarcane harvesters in Argentina, um, where, of course, they were then treated as foreigners, um, non-citizens before migrating down to Santa Cruz. And indeed, the Bolivian government's policies of encouraging migration to Santa Cruz were often framed as sort of ending this loss of braceros, because um, they use the same term, familiar with in the US-Mexico context to Argentina. Um, and so weaving those together is kind of one one strategy I hope to adopt in several of these chapters, kind of moving between the local and the transnational.
0: Yeah, and it's it's such a it's such a great um way of framing these stories. Um and so one of the one of the things that you are really concerned with, I think particularly in in chapter three, is how Different communities and different groups are able to speak back to the state, you say, or, or to to make claims on the state based on their either their productivity, their relationship to the land, or their status um, as certain kinds of kinds of actors. Um, and so, in these stories, you have you have different kinds of migrants who, in some cases, are preferred by the state for for various reasons because the state is anxious and it wants the Andeans to to stay within the country. But um, one of the great stories of the Bolivian 20th century is um, Andean indigenous communities becoming citizens and demanding the rights of citizenship. But as they move into the lowlands, they are also settlers displacing other um, less visible indigenous communities, but they're also moving into a context of of uh, lowland communities where there's already a, a long history of migration. Um, and so in some cases, they might be preferred. But in many cases, the, the Mennonite communities are read as, for example, German, and therefore white, um, and therefore implied more modern in certain ways, um, even as they're pursuing a different kind of approach to community building and, um, and in fact, trying to protect themselves in some ways from the state. Um, so I would love to hear more about these these kind of preferred, um, migrants, or at least the ways that these communities do communicate and speak to the state. Great. Yeah. I think
1: to draw back on that idea that all of these groups are, you know, questionable citizens or or their belonging is certainly questioned, um, by different actors, right. Whether it's the state or local elites or other populations that are sometimes being displaced by their arrival, um, they're really forced to kind of legitimate their claims to belong in that region through their transformation of the landscape and, and through their role as, as farmers, as, as productive farmers, fitting in with the sort of model of food security in Bolivia, right? Producing these crops that Bolivia previously had to import. So they all do make a common claim to an extent to this idea of agrarian citizenship, um, but how they do it and their ability to sort of do it is also dependent upon many other factors related to sort of ideas about race and modernization. Um, and so I could touch a little bit on, on how some of these groups respond. Um, jumping back to the, the Okinawans is, is kind of an interesting starting point. Um, they do have advocates in the country, um, this very small community that had existed beforehand of Japanese Bolivians. They do have a powerful international ally, right, in the United States, which is also supporting a lot of these development projects in Bolivia and has an agreement with um, the Bolivian government. And so that is one way in which they're sort of successful in inserting themselves into this environment. But they end up facing a much stronger racialized hostility. And there, there's nothing subtle about the racial hostility towards Japanese settlers in Bolivian newspapers, especially in Santa Cruz, the newspaper Aldebar in the 1950s. Um, that discusses them as an invasion um, that sometimes makes the rhetorical sort of arguments uh, a bit insincere in certain ways. If you think what happens next, that Braceros should be brought back from Argentina, these Bolivian Braceros, before this foreign element um, is brought in. and It was compelling to kind of investigate the way that Okinawans and and Japanese uh, migrants as well negotiated that that xenophobia and that hostility often through sort of these model performances of agrarian citizenship. Um, when they encountered hostile editorials in the newspaper, they invite the entire editorial board out to visit the colonies, um, you know, after you see these sort of reluctant retractions of the editorials um, in the paper, admitting that the, the Okinawa colonists are, are developing the land, you know, um, and they're not, you know, some accusations are that they're fishermen and they're not even farmers, right? And so they're able to kind of overturn these these local hostilities, um, and sometimes those hostilities run up through um, higher levels of government. Um, but, but I think largely successful despite a, a profound initial hostility, and that does speak to the changing view of Japanese and Okinawan migrants in Latin America, and uh, Brazilian historians probably be more familiar with that um, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, um, with the rise of Japan in the post-war period, its economic success, um, that characteristic um, being Japanese is often tied to ideas about economic progress that temper sort of an earlier racial hostility. Um, so that's one kind of factor. Um, I think Mennonites uh, arriving in the region, as you say, are, are kind of they're you know they're they're coded as white. Um, this is a region that has sort of a history of, of small scale you know, German merchant migration. So there's a, there's an established community that sees these migrants as racially desirable. Um, but it's tempered a little bit by the sort of expressed tra- traditionalism of this community, right? Their, their explicit desire enshrined in law not to participate in surrounding society, to live sort of the margins of society on farmland that might be occupied by other communities. Um, they do sort of meet some hostility in that regard, um, but they're largely, again, able to kind of use these performances of good agrarian citizenship, whether it's making symbolic donations of colony um, goods to leaders, or even behind the scenes negotiations, they're quite effective at working with legal counsel to um, secure or maintain their privileges. Um, they end up negotiating that. And, and everywhere, they kind of brandish this resume as proven proven agricultural pioneers as they'd see themselves on frontier landscapes, right? It's almost like a genealogy of you know Ukraine, Canadian prairies, northern Mexico. Um, and it's quite, it's quite ultimately successful um, in that regard. Uh, The the final kind of question, which is really what I delve into mostly in in chapter three um, and chapter four, is this idea of how transplanted and dance engage in this claim on the state. Um, And there's a great sort of set of sources, which are incomplete in some ways. But these are letters that have been collected by the Office of the President and the Institute of Colonization, which are housed in the National Archives in Sucre. And they give this really sort of intimate portrait of the, the types of claims that indigenous petitioners are making when they want to go to the lowlands. So when they're still residing in their highland communities, um, and also once they've arrived in the lowland regions, we get kind of a portrait shocking at times of some of the conditions in those areas. Um, And so to run through what some of those strategies are for making claims on their rights to land, um, they certainly directly invoke um, almost word for word at times aspects of the revolutionary policy of the march to the east of diversifying food production, you know, food security, territorial integrity, um, when they want to make those claims, they also evoke a sort of, a sort of very challenging environmental imaginary of the Andes. And through this book, you'll see the Andes and the Amazon and the Andes in and the broader lowland region played off against one another. Um, and indigenous petitioners often refer to the the lands that they hold, especially in Amplicy or Ruro as sort of you know, deserts without support for the life of man. They just speak about being affected by prolonged droughts, of crop failures, of, of animal failures. Um, and so they invoke that environmental imaginary, even as they kind of conjure up the lowlands as this place, uh, this sort of fertile, lush landscape awaiting transformation. And, and that fits quite closely with the state's own imagination of those two landscapes. Um, they, they certainly invoke the, the Argentina connection, um, they often claim that if, if assistance and land is not given they'll have to migrate out to the to the neighboring nation of Argentina so they try and shame the state into action um, and sometimes um, and you work on mining communities so you'll know that they also make much more radical claims almost threatening claims on the state and its commitment to its revolutionary legacy so they, they do all of that in the highlands um, and then we get this very different portrait in the lowlands um, certainly, Pamphlets and films produced for distribution in Bolivia made large claims about the way the state would support migrants when they arrived on the lowland frontier, medical centers, agricultural extension, seed, credit, you know, almost immediate, you know, within three years, access to secure title, um, and lowland migrants to Santa Cruz and other regions um, of the lowlands find next to none of these things provided um, extreme scarcity. Disconnection from original local markets, exploitative pricing when they are finally able to market their products. And so I explore kind of in that, the later part of that chapter the way that they push back on the state um, in the absence of these um, state claims that everything will be provided for migrants. And it starts out as a sort of, again, sort of epistolar tradition of, of letter writing, um, but it transforms into much more radical tactics, um, especially in the late 60s when settlers begin to blockade roads, occupy major cities in the lowlands, um, eventually sometimes take international development workers, the people who are sort of the financiers of these projects, um, hostage um, and hold them hostage to guarantee that, for instance, a bridge across a revolt that was promised will actually be constructed. Um, And this does some things, it's successful in certain ways. It also increases that sort of hostility on the part of lowland elites to these indigenous migrants. Um, and it changes profoundly in the wake of Bolivia's transition to authoritarianism.
0: It's it's interesting you are tracing a kind of prehistory of some of the the protest and mobilization tactics that uh, contemporary observers in Bolivia would be extraordinarily familiar with, both in the highlands and in the lowlands. Um, but so I I, I want to pinpoint this this turning point that you are just alluding to in um, in the nineteen seventies and you you write about how both the revolutionary nationalist movement the party that was in power from 52 to 64 as well as the military governments that succeeded that party um they were both at least deeply rhetorically committed to to developing bolivia through colonization in part and diversifying the economy um but as you as you argue often this um this commitment wasn't backed up with actual infrastructure assistance, or at least infrastructural assistance didn't arrive in the ways that it was often intended to. Um, but really in the seventies with the emergence of the, of the much more uh, violent Banzer dictatorship, you have a, a rollback of state commitments while, while that while Banzer is still interested in development projects, there's a kind of shift in relationship, right. Between, um, what the state looks like and what the, um, what the colonists are demanding. And you talk about the a kind of opening up of space in this period for non-governmental and especially faith-based organizations to come in and do the development work that the state either could not or would not do.
1: Yeah, thanks for that question. Elena. It, it is an interesting moment of transition. And, and to an extent there is, there is continuity here. Um, as you said, the, 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 you know, authoritarian state under Bans remains very committed to developing the lowlands and, and notoriously of course providing extensive lands to kind of political cronies, but um but also it does continue with some of the largest colonization projects in Bolivian history, um, including the Saint Julian project, which I look at in this chapter. Um, but I do note that change that you mentioned uh, that there is kind of a, a more pronounced shift to non-state actors that act as kind of proxies for the state in this case And I think if we look at the broader history of of Bolivia and other regions uh, of Latin America at this time, we'll see the huge explosion of of kind of NGO activity, some with direct faith-based connections, others less so, um, that kind of steps in for a state that's no longer willing to to even rhetorically kind of provide, you know, that assistance. Um, And so to zoom in on a little bit of what happens in this chapter, um, it is a bit of a fascinating case. And it it centers on the work of something called the United Church Committee, um, Uh, which involves uh, an unlikely kind of alliterative coalition of these Methodist missionaries that have been working in Bolivia for some time, Um, a group of Mennonites, but not colony Mennonites, but rather North American Mennonites working for a Mennonite relief agency, and then a group of Marinal nuns. Um, And these three sort of groups, Catholic and then two Protestant, come together in the wake of a devastating flood, um, which impacts a lot of the major colonization zones in the lowlands, Um, The flood is almost contiguous with the map of colonization over the previous decades. Um, And people are displaced from throughout the region and they converge on the small city of Montero, now a pretty big city, just north of Santa Cruz. It's in the center of all these colonization projects. So the Okinawans are flooded out. Indigenous migrants at Yapa are flooded out. Some of the Mennonite colonies to an extent that are there are flooded out. Um, And... As refugees stream into the city, local elites, again, not very comfortable with having these indigenous settlers in the city for a long period of time. So they turn to these religious organizations, which all have kind of their bases in in Montero, to help coordinate sort of a refugee camp for the displaced um, flight victims. And they spend um, several weeks in this camp. um, And the members of the camp organize firewood brigades, cooking brigades, all sorts of other things, really kind of providing most of their own services. Um, with with some guidance from these from these missionaries and other figures, um, and what kind of happens in the wake of that is pretty fascinating. In, in that the, the flood example, the refugee camp um, becomes a model for new forms of colonization. Um, and while some people return to their homes after the flood, a significant group, a few hundred, are unable to because the river has shifted course, um, and they join with this this group of um, religious non-state actors to um, develop new colonies to the north of Santa Cruz. First, an experimental colony for the flood victims, and then a couple years later, a new colony for arriving settlers from the highlands. Um, And finally in 72, they begin um, this colony known as the San Julian um, colony, uh, which is to the east of the Rio Grande the major river there, and um, becomes, by many accounts, sort of one of the more successful colonies in Bolivian history. Um, If you Readers of the book would look at the front of the book. They'll see that unique pinwheel-style formation um, is represents about seventy nuclei, um, which extend off of one of the main roads. And unlike earlier forms of colonization, which placed settlers on these never-ending sort of piano key-style roads, right where people's plots were just strung out on these mm-hmm. penetration roads, the idea of this project was quite different. Um, that you have these pinwheel-shaped formations. You have central services in the middle wells, schools, um, some some form of store, and that this creates a sort of sense of settler solidarity. Um, In addition to that, settlers were kind of given this six-week crash course in um, colony formation, in organizing of their own sort of production brigades, um, in partnership with this religious NGO, which kind of created, you know, the model in collaboration with that initial group of flood victims, and then carried it to these new sites um, and so year after year, these, these colonies expanded as part of the Saint-Guyant project um, all through the 1970s and really attracted the attention of a huge swath of the international development community, um, partly because they had remarkably low abandonment rates. So a lot of the abandonment that had taken place in the 1960s when settlers found themselves, you know, without any state support at all, um, was actually reduced in this period of time in which there wasn't that much more state support um, but the structure, of the sort of solidarity mechanisms put in place in the colony, in almost a cynical way, tended to presume, tended to encourage colonists to to not expect that support um, and really kind of develop their own their own cooperative organizations in, in the absence of the state, um, but kind of in partnership with this group of religious actors. Um, and so, a bit of a fascinating story for me. And, and the chapter does go back in time, um, really to the post-revolutionary period, because it is after fifty-two when we see Protestant organizations expand their activities in Bolivia um, under the new government, and they're invited by Paso Stenzoro, um into the lowlands to do that work. And so they've been working there all through the 50s and 60s when those first colonies are sort of taking place in Santa Cruz. They've seen some of the roadblocks, the hostage-taking, the occupations I talked about previously, and indeed Methodists have participated in some of those activities. What's kind of remarkable is that the banzer coup happens, some of those Members of the Methodist Church are arrested, um, but both the Methodist Church and this this Mennonite organization are able to continue their work under banzer. In fact, they're invited in to take on this new project, um, and so they provide kind of like a through road for me, um, showing the kind of role of faith based activity in in these pres- presumably secular development projects. Um, and for many, there's sort of this tension um, between the supposed evangelical work that certain organizations should be doing. And their work in what amounts to kind of conventional development, modernization, or rural development.
0: And so, in this in this story, one of the things um, you are tracing is your. It's not just it's not just one group, for example, of um, of Mennonite actors or any particular religious group. It's a it's a series of people collaborating in interesting ways um, to pursue these projects. But I want to transition now to the the fifth chapter of your book, which is about. The growth of um, the industrial soybean economy in Bolivia, and and is something that that people who write about Bolivia often are not focusing on too much, and in which um, Mennonite settlers play a a, a very big role. Um, but I want to I want to start actually by asking you to talk about the way you begin your fifth chapter, where you are reflecting on two sort of simultaneous groups of. I guess I would say hapless would be explorers or settlers around Camarillo. So do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I you gotta start with a hook sometimes, right? And uh, it just turns out that um, in the late 1960s, in uh, in 1967, there are these two groups that are sort of exploring, scouting the region to the South of of Santa Cruz, um, observing the landscape. And that, that is, um, the first, what will become the first major migration of Mennonites. Um, there was a small group from Paraguay before, but the first major group from Mexico um, scouting the land, purchasing what will become the largest Mennonite colonies in Bolivia, um, which have produced several sort of, we call them almost daughter or child colonies since then. Um, so they're out there with the members of the Institute, National Institute of Colonization um, looking at a per- property they want to purchase um, and not too far away, up in the hills on the eastern flank of the Andes, um, is, of course, a sort of Cuban guerrilla um, activity, spearheaded by Che Guevara, um, including cooperation from some Bolivians that are thinking about this as a place to launch um, the next major revolution. Um, and I kind of begin with that contrast because, um, of course, aside from a convenient hook, um, I argue that both those groups kind of viewed the frontier, viewed that sort of that space um, as an, great opportunity for autonomous action. It was an area sort of at the margins of the state um, and one that they thought they could strategically use. Um, They both had had success in those sort of frontier landscapes before um, and that they thought they could kind of transition to in Bolivia. Um, And the contrast is notable, of course, because the the following year, Che Guevara's small party is wiped out by a group of U.S.-trained Bolivian rangers. Um, Whereas, as they point out in the chapter, the Mennonite presence expands dramatically across uh, Bolivia, over the following decades, reaching a present-day population of around 100,000, uh, maybe in close to 100, probably about 80, 80 plus different farming colonies. Um, so a huge landscape transformation coming from that one group of foreigners. Um, the other, of course, having a very long revolutionary legacy, but a very limited um, physical transformation of the Bolivian environment.
0: I guess one of the things that jumped out at me about the way you're thinking about um the the soybean economy and and the sort of transformations of the environment that happen is um, the development of a a kind of form of agriculture that in the case of one of the actors you talk to they they claim is more like mining than cultivating right is is um, something that involves extraction of great profit a different kind of labor relationship and so this is something that bringing back to your your um, uh, framing potentially creates a really different kind of subject relationship um, and a really different kind of, for example, citizen. If you are um, the implicit idea of an agrarian citizen is some kind of uh, caretaker relationship to the land or deeply enmeshed in the land. But if, if industrial agriculture is something that is more like extractivism, that does really change the terms in which you think about
1: it. I put that very nicely, Elena. Um, Certainly. Yes. I think this transition to to soybeans, Results in a huge um, transformation transformation story of the the rhetoric of agrarian citizenship um, and the ability for for individuals to claim this. Um, so in a way, there's there's a there's kind of again a through line. Um, we we do see under soybeans a, just a continuation of this push for development agricultural developments on the lowland frontier. If you want to look at it in a different way, it is a fundamental transformation in the meaning of that development. Um, certainly, the MNRs plans. Um, coming out of the revolution, right, are for primarily framed around this notion of food security, um, producing those things that Bolivia had previously had to import to food, uh, to feed, sorry, the, the cities and the mines, right? Things like beef and sugar and, and rice. Um, cotton for a while kind of has a, a role in that as well. Um, the March of the East is somewhat successful at, at filling those um, those gaps quite quickly. By the, by the 60s, the, the market at Santa Cruz is flooded with rice from some of these colonies. Um, with, with sugarcane, there's actually a very quick limit on the amount that uh, is accepted by the local mills. Um, and so we do see in the 70s already um, sort of a tentative shift and a search for new types of crops that can be used to generate export income um, rather than those that are used to feed the nation. Right. And that's kind of a really sort of symbolically laden way to frame what you're doing, um, whether it is generating income through export or, or, or feeding, you know, feeding Bolivians. Um, and so the shift to soy is is fundamental there. Um, again, Bolivia experiments with cotton, um, when cotton prices are high in the 70s, that they crash and, and land that's just cleared rapidly is, is sort of left, um, turned over, often to shifting, eroded um, sort of dunes. But by the late 70s and early 80s, there's this new push for, for soybeans. And this is a, a broader regional story. Of course, it really begins more profoundly in neighboring Brazil, uh, already in the 1960s and 70s, um, but up to the present involves, as you said, what's referred to as often as Soylandia or the United Republic of Soy, a huge section of soybean production, which produces now the majority of the world's soy. Um, in the 2000s, Brazil outpaced the US as major soy producers um, and became this, this mainstay for economies in recently cleared areas, forest areas of inlands South America. Um, so Bolivia belatedly jumped onto this, this production strategy, um, but it fundamentally shifted the meaning of the march to the east. And, and certainly, critiques of that that transition that I have heard from people I interviewed were that that farming had become like mining. Um, I think Bolivianos would often refer to sort of neo extractivism, right, as the model for this, um, in which gas production in Santa Cruz is not that different than soybean production. Um, one of the reasons for this, of course, is also the different sort of labor demands of that industry, the requirements for mechanization. Um, that that, that displace a lot of these more heavily manual labor, these these crops that are produced more more often through forms of manual labor. Um, so there is a depletion of the labor needs as well. One of the Mennonites I interviewed who got into soy in the 1980s described the process as almost as though it was done without work. Um, and this was an individual who had previously been sort of like hand planting corn on newly cleared land. And, and so it was something that this individual embraced um others, others kind of see this as the antithesis sorry, of agrarianism um, in this context. The, the specific case is, is, is interesting to look at as well. And, and that's what I wanted to give to this emerging field of uh, of, of studies of, of the soy boom, which as Latin Americanists, we can see analogies to earlier sort of commodity based histories right, of Latin America's export boom. But, but we don't see as many historical studies of it. Um, we see social scientists discussing soy. Um, contemporary analysis by journalists, political scientists, um, but not much historical attention to that earlier period of time. And I think when we do see it, we often see this sort of macro level analysis of some of the major corporations which dominate um, global soy production and marketing. Um, and what I hope to do in this chapter was really kind of give this ethnic window, I suppose, on how a specific community related to the boom. Um, and a bunch of factors come together in Bolivia. I can just discuss quickly to, to, Situate Mennonites as sort of the pioneers of soy production in that region. Um, we have seed technology coming in to research stations produced in collaboration between Brazil and the U.S. So it jumps the border from Brazil into Bolivia. Um, we have the search for these export generating crops, these new types of crops. Um, in Santa Cruz, there's a, an entrepreneur, a Croatian migrant, um, the Marinkovic family that had come in after World War II um, and operated one of Santa Cruz's largest oil processing plants um, and he'd been working with oil seed with cotton um, previously but begins to encourage producers in the region to start growing soybeans that he can crush at his plant um, for for oil and um, forges a relationship with Mennonites that have arrived from Mexico to start producing soybeans um, helps them kind of develop production strategies um, at the same time as entrepreneurs within that Mennonite colony who A surprising sort of degree of transnationalism are also traveling up to the U.S. and purchasing equipment to import back to Bolivia. Usually secondhand, sort of almost obsolete equipment in the U.S. But this is the the machinery that drives forward Mennonite soy production. Um, Bolivia at the same time is starting to open up um, its economy right in the transition, the very difficult years, the early 1980s, mid-1980s with hyperinflation to um, exports into the region. And they do so at this kind of unique time in which... One of the major sources of animal feed, fish meal stocks produced largely um, through the Peruvian and Chaveta so trade have collapsed um, due to overfishing and alino. Um, and soy meal is really kind of replacing fish meal as the primary um, you know, fodder in the sort of industrialized um, industrialized meat production. Um, and so these, these different factors come together and as they are more mechanized than most surrounding communities, uh, emanates by the 19, late 70s um, despite the fact that they only use steel wheels on their tractors, part of the argument that forced them to leave Mexico have about 10 times as many tractors among 12,000 Mennonites as the entire rural population of Santa Cruz, about 300,000 people, um, are really well positioned to, to embrace the soy boom. And uh, in my interviews with Mennonites in these colonies, um, you really see this sort of almost euphoric move into soy production. It results in great increase, increase in land cleared in the colonies. And then by the late 80s, um, severe sort of issues with drought, with uh, wind-based erosion, um, and a lot of people lose everything in that initial soy boom. Um, people continue to farm soy today, but, but they really do have a, a challenging experience with that, which leads them kind of back to this dairy-based production, which they pioneered in Mexico and also brought to Bolivia. Um, and so again, in a kind of unique way, for these Mennonite farmers is that they do engage in this cash cropping for the market at the same time as they do have this almost artisanal, small-scale dairy, dairy cheese production that sort of helps sustain them when, when that cash cropping fails for market reasons or for environmental reasons. Um, and so I examined that interplay um, through the 80s and through the 90s, um, a period of economic crises for much of it for Bolivia, but a period in which soy production is expanding dramatically. Um, so that's kind of how I I want to sort of approach that broader history of the soy boom, um, which I hope to see literature really expand on that in the coming years um, from a specific sort of grounded perspective.
0: Yeah, and I'm really glad that you um, brought up the kind of the the really uh, transnational dynamics of thinking about the history of this boom, but also what it meant in Bolivia. And one of the things your book repeatedly does is is creates a transnational context for um, a place that really has often been kind of provincialized from studies of global history. And so in your book is um, just throughout your book, you you bring in contexts of, you know, this comparative Cold War context, thinking about how different high modernist projects are happening in parts of Africa or Asia or other parts of Latin America, and really um, constantly making those connections where the what's going on in Bolivia is really important to what's going on globally. And as a fellow Bolivianist, I just want to say that's great. <laughs> it's something that I, I really appreciate and it's sometimes hard to do in this context. Um, and so I'm going to sort of transition that to just a, a question about how you managed to organize this project, because your book, you're, you're looking at at least three migrations, um, at least three different national or local or um, different kinds of migratory contexts. you're looking at sources that include documentaries, colonization records, you do a, a huge number of oral histories. So how did you approach doing this extraordinarily ambitious project? And how did you write such a, um, a, a readable book coming out of all of this together?
1: Well, I'm, by those Thank, thanks, I'm glad to read those comments, thanks, Lena. I'm glad that the, especially the transnational element um, resonates because I do think that is there's an aspect of just, I think partly a luxury of, of just what a fascinating place um, Bolivia is for for scholars of the region um, that sometimes internal dynamics um can kind of take precedent over over transnational connections because it still is a country with these profound um, transnational um, ties. And so I think of the chapter structure, I was always kind of interested in, in making that dance between a very local description of something going on in Santa Cruz, how this was read through sort of a national lens, and then looking for that, that transnational tie, whatever it might be. Um, and as you say, a lot of these things are happening either just with contemporary parallel context or sometimes direct connections to other parts of the world. You know, the Methodist Church, which became so active in Chapter 4 in development, um, declared Bolivia a land of decision in the 1950s and, and promoted it um, among Methodist would-be missionaries. But it also declared the Belgian Congo a land of decision, um, Korea, um, as well as parts of Indonesia. And so it was involved in these these multiple locales. And, and I find that, that fascinating. And sometimes there's space to really dive into that. Sometimes it's, it gets a mention in the book. Um, but as far as structuring what I did, I think there's a few things going on. Um, one thing I, I think I was influenced pretty early on by reading another book about um, the South American interior, Hugh Raffles in Amazonia, which engages in this really kind of mixed bag, chapter to chapter analysis of all sorts of different types of sources and types of actors that are working on the same landscape that have completely different sort of sets of knowledges or technologies they're applying there. And I really kind of saw that as a model for looking at um, a frontier landscape like Santa Cruz um, as well. And uh, the other part is, is a bit more strategic, and this is just the challenge of working um, on some of these regions. The, the lack sometimes of a full source base um, really forces you to look for different types of sources. And so when I stumbled across a series of films um, and short documentaries and pamphlets that, that represented lowland colonization more as kind of an imaginary um, of the state, I really kind of seized on that for for chapter one and thought about representation um, you know, when I stumbled across a trove of, of documents about Okinawa um, under U.S. occupation at the U.S. National Archives, um, that helped shape a significant portion of Chapter 2 and, um, and similar, sim- in similar ways um, with these religious um, NGO actors. Um, when I, they, there's quite extensive archival resources available um, in the United States where a lot of these organizations have their headquarters. So I did work in the Methodist archives um, held at Drew University and the Mennonite Central Committee this Mennonite NGO um, up in uh, Akron, Pennsylvania. And the kind of fascinating thing there is that they maintain not simply records of their activities in Bolivia, but really kind of extensive archival records for periods in which we don't have a centralized archive in Bolivia. Um, And I've talked to other researchers that have had similar success with uh, with the Marinal Archive or or other sort of NGO and, and, and religious archives. Um, because a lot of the materials were not centralized, especially for the recent period, because this book runs all the way through the 20th century. Um, It became progressively more difficult to find archival sources as we enter into the period of dictatorship in the 1970s. Um, And and last of all, for the Mennonites in chapter five, right, um, this is a group who have intentionally often escaped the archive, um, and especially among the the group of old colony Mennonites of Bolivia have not engaged in the sort of writing of their own history um, that other Mennonites have undertaken at times, and that other groups I study, like the Okinawans, regularly do. Um, they they make um, you know repeated sort of colony wide collections of history books that they produce um, and records, and so oral history is kind of just the necessary path forward um, for that group.
0: Okay, so I think I have taken up a great deal of your time, and I have. One final question that is kind of an unfair one to ever ask a historian, which is in the past year, there's been some substantial changes in the Bolivian situation and um, a kind of uprising of the lowlands in certain ways or something that could be read as that. So do you think your book, what do you think your book offers um, contemporary observers of what's going on in Bolivia right now?
1: Yeah, it's, it's challenging in a way, especially being so close to it. Um time-wise, uh, there's certainly others, you know, um, the colleagues we you know, political scientists, the journalists that have written extensively on this already. I do hope that given the role of Santa Cruz in all this, um, you know, when you have the president of the committee pro-Santa Cruz, um, you know, demanding that, that, that Evo resign, sort of a central actor um, in his eventual ouster, um, this is an organization that was active in the 1950s, um, petitioning against Thailand migrants organizing against the central government in conflicts over oil royalties, which I discuss um, in the chap- first chapter of this book. And so you can kind of see those echoes of, of this sort of regional state conflict at play. Um, I think the other important question to think about, and I, and I do use a little bit of Evo's personal trajectory uh, to kind of frame this book, is that the, and the terminology I should add is is, is one that's been discussed in Bolivia, people, references to, to Bolivians as sort of settlers or colonists in their own land um, is, is something that's contested. There's a terms uh, sort of interculturals that are often used in place of that. But the president himself has this trajectory as a settler, um, someone whose family traveled to Argentina as, as uh, field laborers in the 1960s, who eventually settled in a, a colony in the Chapare created initially by the MNR in the 1960s, although it was quite small at the time, um, and then, of course, made good and came back to the center of power. And so his own trajectory, as well as the opposition that he faced, both kind of created um, or enabled by that longer process of the march to the east. Um, and if we think a little bit about the, the period of time that preceded um, this dramatic political transition, right, which uh, are the, the fires, the extensive fires that were covered quite widely in the international media in the summertime, um, these were taking place in an area um, where we saw unprecedented developments in the last, just in the last couple of decades, and especially under um, AFO's government, uh, which had adopted a strong environmentalist policy, but of course also did push forward um, a policy of extraction in the lowlands. Um, I remember attending a, a day of corn um, outside of Santa Cruz when of did cultural affairs and listening to his vice presidents um, talk about tripling the frontier, um, you know, expansion in the next few years. Um, And that certainly came to pass, especially. I encourage anyone to look at Landsat sort of photos of the area east of the Rio Grande in Santa Cruz and to see how much land transformation you have over the past few years under Evo's government. And so I think that's an important part of the story as well. Um, Both the long trajectories of the regional resistance, the the president's own trajectory, and the continuing role of frontier development um, in Bolivia today. Um, Indeed, amid the fires, um, a new export contract, export. Um, Bolivian beef directly to China had just been signed as well, providing another sort of cash cropping um, opportunity for a, a good that had once been considered an item of food security. Um, so yeah, these these are trajectories that are still definitely playing out.
0: Very much changing and very much um, building on the history that you trace here. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Um, and I really appreciate you you spending some time talking about your book and I really encourage readers to go out and and check it out there's a lot there's a lot in there so thank you thanks
1: thanks a lot and I deeply appreciate you taking the time to speak with me